0: Hello and welcome to the Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Max Haven and I'm Canada Research Chair in
1: Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. And my name is Aris Comporosos Athanasiu and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. On this show, we speak to people whose research or writing has inspired us to think differently about capitalism and society. We seek to go beyond medical approaches to mental health and to explore the way an economic system both produces and relies on anxiety. This podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project with the support of University College London's Institute for Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information, you can visit anxious.community it's a pleasure to have uh, with us today Anna Reid who is a student at uh, UCL on the BSc in social sciences a final year student who uh, collaborated with us over the summer on the project that we are about to discuss in today's podcast which is uh, specifically uh, aimed at Uh, understanding and offering insights into the current anxiety epidemic within UK universities. So it's a pleasure to have Anna with us today and um, we'll be having a uh, a conversation about the the research and her experience of um, looking into those themes and uh, a general conversation about the implications of those themes for the topic of our podcast.
0: And maybe just before we go into our discussion with Anna, uh, we thought that maybe I would give you a brief overview of the project uh, which Anna's research contributed to and of which this podcast is a part. Um, So both are part of what Aris and I think about as the Common Anxieties Research Project. And it's an attempt by us to extend our research into the sociological phenomenon of financialization uh, as a way of explaining what has been framed by experts, policymakers, and students themselves as a mental health epidemic on university campuses, specifically characterized by increasing rates of what are classified as anxiety and depressive disorders. Um, Aris and I, both individually and together, have been doing work for a number of years on this phenomenon of financialization by which we mean not only the increasing influence and power of large financial institutions like hedge funds, investment banks, uh, and sort of financial intermediary and technological companies, but also the way that that incredible economic and political influence those companies wield has major effects on society and culture much more broadly. And our, our hunch was that if we wanted to look Uh, not only at these effects, but also the ways in which people were resisting the effects of financialization, we would need to look close to home, which is to say the institution in which both of us work, which is to say the university. Uh, I'll be at two very different universities on two different sides of the Atlantic. Ours uh, teaches at University College London, I teach at Lakehead University in Canada. Um, And in order to do so, we wanted to see if somehow, how the so-called epidemic in uh, uh, mental health on university campuses was related to the phenomenon of financialization over the last 40 years, but which has accelerated so dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, And we thought to ourselves, well, perhaps this is in fact the case. And at least on, on a surface level, we can see that, of course, universities are struggling in a financialized environment to, uh, to have enough money to pay for their services. They're increasingly charging students more in tuition fees. Students are going further and further into debt and students are much more anxious for good reason about the economy, the financialized economy that they're going to graduate into and the sorts of skills that the university will actually prepare them for. Um, and so this is at least on the surface, one way into thinking about this anxiety epidemic is not the fault of individuals per se or the responsibility of individuals, but it's something that we are encountering and experiencing as a society as a whole, with the university in some ways as the, uh, the crux of the matter. We began our research almost two years ago now thinking about the main dominant discourses in the media about anxiety, as they have been framed by experts, policymakers, uh media pundits and even academics and we identified sort of three main um things that tend to be said about this anxiety epidemic The first is the most dismissive, and it's that uh, young people today have been too coddled by so-called helicopter parents who've taken care of their every need and not allow them to build so-called resiliency in the face of the world. And as a result, we have a generation of young people who are incapable of dealing with the rigors of life in the university or in society at large, and who are increasingly demanding specialized and unique mental health services to make up for the fact that they're basically wimps. Um, uh, And we of course reject this hypothesis almost whole cloth, although there are, it sort of accidentally does identify a number of interesting features of society in our moment, parenting, schooling, and the rest. The second general hypothesis that's presented in the media is that in fact, the epidemic of youth mental health and mental health uh, crises in universities is simply because um, of social media that we have a generation now in their 20s who've grown up on Instagram, Facebook, uh, and other platforms. And this has led them to a kind of um, weird mix of anxiety, paranoia, narcissism, and depression. Um, And to a certain extent, of course, we can't underestimate the influence of such technologies and their everyday use, especially by young people. But this often quite dangerously misidentifies the problem because, of course, these technologies were not created in a vacuum, and they don't exist in a vacuum. These were created by huge multinational corporations in order to harvest attention and data, and that is their function, and we have delivered society's youth up to them, not out of a sense of inevitability. There was always a choice being made there, and our interest is in sort of the deeper choices our society has made. And the final uh, common explanation we hear in the media for the anxiety epidemic, so, to speak, is simply that it is a biomedical matter to be handled by healthcare practitioners and patients. And that it has nothing to do with society at large, uh, but in fact is simply a, a medical issue of so called broken brains. And those brains can be fixed either through therapeutic intervention or through pharmaceutical intervention. Uh, and as a result, we've seen the incredible steep rise of use in psychopharmaceuticals to treat generalized anxiety disorder or various symptoms of depression. Uh, and while we as researchers and caring people in the world don't want to deny the efficacy of those uh, either uh, pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical treatments for people, we do want to question whether this uh, p- epidemic of mental health can be addressed purely as a biomedical matter. And if and to what extent we need to address this deeper sociological questions at play, as we've already mentioned. Uh, But then also think about that maybe the cure or the solution to this epidemic demands a much more profound shift, not simply treating individuals, but somehow transforming society towards a different horizon where young people uh, would have better prospects um, for their future and where the university as a place where Western society at least has always trained young people to inherit the sort of tools of their society could actually be a space of learning and growth and joy, rather than what it has become for many of us, both employees and students, which is a space of great anxiety, fear, and uh, exhaustion. Um, So that perhaps then frames, in a way, the project as a whole. And I'll turn it back to you, Aris, to maybe just discuss uh, what we asked Anna to do this summer uh, as a researcher, and then we can go into the many fascinating things that she found.
1: Thank you, Max. So from starting from the uh, assumptions that Max has just outlined, our intention was to, and our curiosity was to try and dig a bit deeper into the current uh, crisis, the current epidemic of anxiety within universities. And so what we set out to do, was to, uh, underst- to, to research and study closely the discourses that are produced within and around universities, and in particular UK universities, uh, around issues of mental health, uh, especially over the last few years. So the main research question that we wanted to address was how the so-called anxiety epidemic in UK universities has been framed in public discourse. So we wanted there to look at how uh, various uh, views and uh, responses to that epidemic are represented in popular media, newspapers. Um, And we wanted to try and capture both the side of the institutions, so the university's own responses to to that crisis, uh, as well as, importantly, the ways in which students themselves seem to be responding and engaging in debates around that crisis, and I want to emphasize here that uh, what was key in that project and Anna's help in that was uh, very uh, important for us was to try and um, in, uh, to, to try and understand a bit better those grassroots and um, uh, often unspoken informal ways uh, responses that students have had uh, have, had articulated and have been articulating uh, within that uh, crisis and so um, broadly speaking we had two categories of, of discourse around the epidemic one was the formal responses the institutional responses uh, to the crisis and the other one was the Uh, the student-based and student-generated responses. And so we are now going to have a... uh, We're now going to discuss with Anna uh, and hear more in more detail about the findings of that work that was done over the summer. So Anna, uh, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And so... Perhaps we could start, um, uh, if, you, if you could tell us a bit about, so I, I mentioned the, the research question and what we set out to do, the different types of discourse. But so perhaps if we can start with, um, if you could tell us a bit about how we, um, how you came up with the events that you identified and what the, if you could describe a bit, the key events in the timeline that you looked at within this crisis in the UK?
2: Yeah so specifically I was looking at the last three years and the key events that have happened in the UK, um, specifically like in the media and looking at a media analysis of it. Um, so uh, predominantly I was looking at how uh, the UK university anxiety epidemic is framed within public discourse and specifically comparing the ways in which the media and students are framing this issue. Um, so This initially started by identifying the key events and moments in the media that covered um, this university mental health crisis um, as well as the key events of student activism that were also reported in the media. So these events included um, the ongoing suicide crisis at the Bristol University, but I think it's also important to note here that um, although these events that happened at this university are ones that report about most in the media, um, it's unfortunately happening at universities all over the UK, but these remain largely unreported. Um, so that happened in 2017, that started being fought in the media and that was the time frame I used. So from 2017 up until now, um, is when I looked at um, how this issue is being framed within the media. And then I started moving on to how specifically students at university, and um, how their events have been framed by the media. So then I looked at um, some universities in London, specifically UCL and Goldsmiths, and how they had both had mental health marches. Um, across multiple years led by um, student-run societies because they felt as if their voices were being left unheard by the universities. So those both happened within 2017 up until now again. And then lastly, I also looked at how um, the media started to report uh, univer- how university media forums were being used as a space for mental health confessions. And I think that this was probably one of the most alarming things I found. i um, specifically looking through online media forums that were student-led and the hundreds of posts that were unfortunately left by students who were really struggling with their mental health issues. Um, I think that was a really important thing to raise about how students feel like they have had no support from their university and yeah their voices are being left unheard unfortunately.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: it's an amazing
0: spectrum of, of things you looked at and, and the results are so interesting. I wonder if we could go back uh, and and start with the the headline-grabbing news out of Bristol University yeah. in 2017, which you uh, began with. And just, just keeping in mind, I think that we have an international listenership who might have missed the story, as I did originally when it happened uh, over here in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there at Bristol and what the kind of student responses and the university response was?
2: Yeah, so in 2017, there was a string of um, student suicides that started to spark mental health alerts. Um, both in the media, at the university, across the student um, population. So um, students framed us after the academic institution failed to keep up with the rising demand for the mental health services. And unfortunately, um, a lot of students started to take their own life. Mm. Um, so that issue follows the emerging suicide crisis at that university over the last couple of years, and the inadequate, inadequate um, responses of support from the institution. So unfortunately, students at the university feel as though the main issue is that the university hasn't actually done anything um, mm. to help this issue. Specifically, um, there was a lot of hostility towards um, the university's vice chancellor, Hugh Brady, um, who made a report about making excuses on. The, but they thought that he was making excuses in the matter, um, stating that although the increases in the suicides at risk for University were alarming, it wasn't an isolated case and it happens all over the country. Mm. So. Consequently, students at Bristol University felt as if they were left invisible. And this was sort of the first um, report of students at university um, having suffering from this mental health crisis. And it was these strings of suicides at the university that really got this um, so-called anxiety epidemic going and really started to frame the public discourse on it.
0: Mm. And you had looked uh, at, you know, um, media coverage of these events, but then you were also looking at uh, student forums, especially on Facebook, uh, that are sort of student led and organized and often anonymous. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about them in terms of uh, what was happening at Bristol and at some of the other universities you looked at?
2: Yeah, so I looked at... um, a few of the universities across the UK, these um, student-led online platforms where students post anonymous posts about all sorts of things happening at university. Mm-hmm. So I was specifically looking for ones relating to mental health and specifically um, support from universities and mental health services. Um, a lot of themes that ran through these student forums um, it's like suggested that um, support services supplied by the university were severely understaffed had long mm. waiting times and left students unable to receive counselling appointments. Mm. Um, but it wasn't the fact that the university was underfunded, or they didn't have the funds to improve mental health services at the university, but it was the fact that they weren't utilising these um, funds in the right way. So mm. this is what left, led the student psychological services severely underfunded. underfunded another point was that even the services that are provided by the university they're overly simplistic and they can often be patronizing so Mm. both students at Goldsmith University and UCL have had like pet-a-dog days where university will bring in a dog as a means of improving student well-being and I think that kind of just shows the responses that the university is having to this kind of crisis I mean students are waiting months and months for an appointment just an initial appointment to try and seek counselling for their problems and the university just isn't answering their calls at all.
1: Mm-hmm. So this, this is, I think this is really interesting. The, the, so I detect in the accounts that you uncovered in your research, the, the, you know, when you speak about this element of uh, students feeling patronised,
2: yeah.
1: uh, maybe even there is a sort of cynical view of what the university has been offering yeah. uh, them during this crisis, do you think, is this fair? Do you think that there were there was a scepticism generally around uh, the university responses?
2: Uh, yeah, generally around it, I think students are quite angry and they feel quite let down by their university. I mean, um, students are paying 9,000 pounds a year to receive not only their um, education, but also the support that they need from the university in order to help them succeed. I mean, I think a lot of things that students were saying is that they don't receive any face-to-face contact from Um, contacts like their personal tutors or um, people who are running their course they receive they receive no checkups from um, their tutors and things like that which leaves them feeling on their own and that's why these students are then um, moving to these online platforms and unfortunately disclosing their mental health issues anonymously. I think they feel very let down by the University and the fact that they aren't doing anything about it unfortunately.
0: um, it's funny to think about uh, the 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 dog the dog days of university the the when they bring in the the sort of dogs to be pet and the puppies um, because it's one of the things that I've noticed speaking with other faculty member I would say particularly not to not to generalize older faculty members and also members of the public. Is that the the those are very headline grabbing and charismatic media events, and then they contribute to the kind of narrative that today's students are, you know, over and treated too nicely, and are a bunch of you know uh, wispy snowflakes who are blown about by the winds of fate in a in a way that is somehow damning of them. Um, Yeah, I mean, I remember a a number of times people have brought up that particular example. It's interesting how it plays on both sides, ultimately, that, you know, for students who are experiencing this, they recognize quite clearly that this is a band-aid solution aimed at creating a basically, a very cheap way that universities can pretend that they care, uh, what me and my my partner, uh, Cassie, call carerism, uh, where corporations or large entities deploy a discourse or performance of care in order to mask its complete absence And yet for the public, this becomes yet more evidence that students are somehow, uh, you know, this kind of uh, overly needy special interest group that should be brought to heal.
2: Yeah, I think that also kind of leads into um, students feeling like completely like unsupported by staff at university and how there's an unreciprocal um, element of support. So like whilst Mm -hmm. the student body is really cohesive and supportive of each other, they feel like Senior management staff are continually failing them and investing like huge money into projects and campus facilities, opposed to pumping money into like severely underfunded mental health services. Mm-hmm. And yeah, consequently, students just feel as they're being treated as part of a business and that they're not cared for by or about the university. So, for example, we have like the lecturers', the lecturers strikes in 2019. We mm-hmm. received an overwhelming amount of support from students, but there's a feeling of unreciprocated support as staff don't support and change student, student issues regarding mental health. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which I feel like leads into a lot of hostility towards senior management, as well as the university in itself. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it leaves, leaves student isolated and suffering from mental health problems.
1: Yeah. And, and so Anna, do you think that on that, on that last point that you mentioned, this, the question of the relationship between staff, senior management and students, I wonder and what...
0: Honestly, you, let me just, just briefly break in here for a note for our international listeners that... In the UK context, the term staff tip, uh, typically encompasses teaching staff as well, so profess teaching and research staff. Yeah. But in in the North American context, staff usually refers to um, I see administrative staff, and we use the term faculty to re- refer, I you see. know, the highfalutin workers at the university. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Sorry. You.
0: Please continue. So, Ara.
1: so I was I was just wondering uh, on that point. Of, about the relationship between faculty members, uh, senior uh, management staff and students. Um, From your research, what what you thought about the role of student unions as a kind of formal space where some of those demands, both on the question of provision of mental health services and funding of those services, but also the questions around supporting uh, lecturer strikes, uh, putting demands to university management, how did you see how how did the role of the student unions um, how was that role framed or how much was it discussed and how active did it seem to be?
2: Um, the student, I suppose, I'll give the example specifically at UCL because that's what I looked at the most. But the student union there was really um, involved in fighting these underfunded mental health services at UCL. So. They used lots of different forms of activism, such as silent protests, like outside the provost office, as well as um, protests uh, during open days and multiple other times during the year. So this was like a collective forum where lots of students joined together and went to these huge protests across campus and sat outside the provost office and also stormed into his office. Um, So they were very active in the issue and trying to help solve it, but unfortunately, during, like, during the first two years of whenever they were campaigning, they received nothing from the university. And despite the number of letters and petitions that they signed, um, the university still did nothing, the provost didn't listen. But recently they were just funded 140K by um, UCL to fund their mental health services. So it's clear that these cohesive student platforms were actually working and helped to create change, but unfortunately they still think that 140K isn't enough they were giving the example of like how the provost has paid x amount of money and he can only fund this amount into helping student well-being yet so many people are still suffering in silence
1: um
2: across many of the media forums at bristol at ucl there was a lot of hostility towards um the vice chancellors and provosts against these issues with many hashtags um, telling them to resign many memes um, telling them that they were useless, things like that. So, I mean, they're very active in it. And it's also created a lot, a lot of more hostility towards mm. these mm.
1: senior management. So it's this is, I find interesting that you you were telling us about the language that was used in those online student forums. Mm. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your experience of navigating those spaces for the, for the research and how you found um, the messages and the kind of conversations that were uh, taking place there?
2: Yeah, so every, on every forum there's a specific hashtag and every um, post has um, got a unique like ID code or number. Um, so I started off by searching keywords like mental health or student support services, um, like lack of support, things like that. And it would come up with hundreds of posts um, angry, angry posts from students saying about how they were severely unsupported at university by these mental health services, how they're really underfunded, how they have no faith left in the university um, and then so it's quite easy to go back and find them all because they've all got this unique ID code but um, yeah there's hundreds and hundreds of posts across these forums unfortunately um, stating how bad the support services are for students and their mental well-being.
1: I, I think if, if I remember correctly, Anna, you, you mentioned that some there was also some quite emotional material where of um, students expressing distress uh, about their personal circumstances, right?
2: Yeah, so um, on every post where someone would say something quite alarming about their mental health, there'd be a trigger warning. So I mean, whether students wanted to read it or not, they'd know because there'd be a trigger warning. But um, yeah, unfortunately, some students were posting in real time about ending their lives. Um, which was alarming, and there would be hundreds of comments on there from other students telling them uh, to message them. But unfortunately, because these posts are anonymous, you can't find who is posting them. The only people who know are the admins, but they're not allowed to release it. Um, yeah, so that's alarming in itself. So you can't find the person who's posting these messages, and then they're posting such awful and saddening things online about wanting to end their lives. And it mm. wasn't just an isolated incident. I mean, it happened so many times across the, the time when I was like looking at these media forums. And I think that that's really alarming in itself that people feel they're so alone that they have to post anonymously on these media forums rather than having the ability to go to their student support services and, and seek mm. help. But there's none because the waiting times are so long and it's so understaffed and it's so underfunded. So they can't seek the support that they need.
0: Mm, mm, mm. I wonder if you saw in in students' responses to these stories, rebuttals of sort of the common things we would hear from the uh, <laughs> the the angry uncles of the world uh, who would you know condemn students for being too needy. I you know, and I, I wonder about the the response that often comes from even university administrators themselves that in some way, the university's job shouldn't be to uh, provide mental health services, that they should be there to rigorously uh, test and uh, and and sort and weed out students mm-hmm. who can make the cut and can't make the cut, because then that will somehow lead to better impacts on society when the people graduate. Did you see students responding to this and, and other kind of arguments that are circulating in the media?
2: Mm, I did see students responding to this and like, I'm calling against these uh, arguments that, you know, what you've talked about before, how that's really coddled by parents, um, Mm -hmm. social media, etc. But I think that that was also a huge difference between the the way that the media frames this issue and the way that students are actually framing it. So, I mean, the media is suggesting that the students are coming into university with these existing problems. I mean, I'm sure lots of students do, Um, but they're suggesting that it's the way that they've been brought up and the way that society is, that's what is causing this anxiety epidemic, whereas the students are really framing it as the university is what has spurred mm. it on and caused it in a way by their wrong utilization of funds, by um, the way that they're receiving no support from mm. tutors, lack of face-to-face contact, and also the fact that someone even suggested the way that the lectures are run, or like you go to a, a lecture and equipment's not working, or the lecturer is just, not putting in the amount of effort or the time that they have paid for. I mean it's just all of these things which is one after another that students are suggesting is what's actually spurring this on rather than as opposed to what the media is suggesting.
0: Mm-hmm. And then in the case of both UCL to a certain extent and Goldsmiths which you looked at, um, often these student protests were wrapped up also in students mobilizing around questions of racial justice as well. Is that, yeah. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that and were were those struggles for racial justice sort of happening alongside or running parallel to these struggles around uh, mental health or at what points were they kind of entangled?
2: I mean, I think this is such a huge issue across the UK mm-hmm. at all of the universities. I mean, at Goldsmith, um, uni- the students um, were protesting at Deptford Town Hall for 147 days in mm-hmm. March of 2019 over institutional racism. They were campa- campaigning for a series of measures to tackle racism within the academic institution and calling for greater support for um, BAME students and that was like in the form of counselling. And even following these protests, a survey reported that up to half of Goldsmith students feel unsafe after experienced racial abuse by white peers and staff members. Mm. So it's actually run parallel towards this anxiety epidemic because the experiences of racism at universities is what is also spurring on their poor mental health because they feel unsafe on campus mm. um, after they've, they've experienced this. And they've argued that the university hasn't done enough to adequately respond to these issues and subsequently many students' health has been affected. I mean, they suggest that curriculums at university actively discourage multiculturalism and diversity, offer a a small selection of modules in other countries' histories and cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, many societies at university are overly white and um, BAME students are discouraged to join due to fears of rejection. And the university has done nothing to actively encourage diversity or to try and get students across the board involved. Um, mm-hmm. So students at UCL did launch a decolonised curriculum campaign. Um, I don't. It was very recent, so I'm not sure if it's gone through yet. But it just shows how much students are really campaigning for change, and how much is really not being done by the university. I think.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, some of those issues around racial justice and the the um, there the were also reflected in some of the conversations in the student uh, forums mm. that you looked at.
2: Yeah, there was many many conversations about on the student forums over this, like following the death of um, George Floyd. This really spurred on a and like a whole new conversation about racism at university and how um, students aren't supported enough and how it's uh, impacting their mental health, and I think that 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 ties in really nicely also with um, the theme of COVID nineteen and how that's mm-hmm. really impacting students' mental health. So, for example, um, students uh, overseas are scared and anxious about coming back to university due to fear of um, being like racially abused um, following like xenophobic attacks at the beginning of March um, due to coronavirus. It's made students particularly anxious about returning. Um, And as teaching switches online and social contact becomes minimal, students experience more social isolation. And the problem, yeah, just becomes bigger.
1: Mm -hmm. And so I guess it's interesting to then look at the the current moment and the the, the circumstances at universities with the coronavirus crisis. And um, I know that in the final part of your research, you looked at how that ongoing crisis um, is being sort of perceived and talked about and is affecting students. Mm. Um, So do you want to tell us a little bit more about it?
2: Yeah, I mean as the pandemic only began in March there's like not as much data as there is obviously on the other um, themes that I've brought up but um, there are a number of posts on these online forums again to suggest that students are feeling really anxious and concerned about turning to university um in September and it's the pandemic that has had this significant impact on non-people's mental health specifically as during lockdown people have become isolated and have had no social contact so returning to university for them is now a complete change of scenery and people are becoming really anxious over the prospect of not being able to receive the support that they need um specifically mental health services i don't know if they're moving online or if people are going to be able to um, adequately access them. But I think that's a huge concern amongst students that they're gonna be completely isolated now studying online and at home. They're not gonna be able to access the services that they need. Um, so I think that's a huge concern actually for student mental wellbeing in the upcoming months.
0: Mm. I mean, as a student yourself and, and, you know, being near the end of your degree and having, having been in the university at UCL during the kind of period that we're studying, was, was what you found during this research, did it, did it surprise you or did it confirm what you had suspected um, more generally?
2: Mm, yeah, so, I mean, I've seen these online forums for three years now. I, I wasn't surprised by the things that I found and also having conversations with other students and them also experiencing issues with student wellbeing services. I really wasn't surprised about the things that I found. I think that there really needs to be a huge funding into the mental health services at UCL because the waiting times are, and the ability to get an appointment is just, it's, it's not right. And students are suffering as a result of it. So yeah, I wasn't surprised by what I found. I, I thought I would find that, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And did you, just to follow up a bit on your, how your own experience can re, um, relates to the findings and what we have been discussing, did you find that the the kind of discussions in the in the forums and the campaigns by students and unions? Uh, did you find that um, were you had you already been aware of those uh, kind types of conversations and those kind of um, uh, those kind of campaigns? And do do you think that before you started this research? your your cohort and your friends and and uh, classmates do you think that there was a sort of level of awareness of that 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 this was going on that this kind of political kind of turmoil was going on
2: i think that um it's interesting because although the student like body can be really supportive and cohesive at times when there's huge protests and activism going on, when people are talking about individual issues surrounding mental health, it's quite closed off and people don't tend to have an open and honest co- honest conversation about it. So I think in that way, talking with peers, people don't tend to bring up their mental health issues and stuff, which I think is why people are also posting anonymously online. But I think that, the crisis of underfunding and the wrong utilisation of funds at the university is something that a lot of students are aware of because um, of the campaigns that have been going on. I mean, it's quite hard to miss if you're around campus and a big protest like that is going on. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of students also a bit um, skeptical of talking about the university in a bad way. Mm. I mean, at University of Bristol, students had also suggested that they were they were too worried to bring up issues about the university like in a fear of trash talking them or in a fear of getting in trouble. I think that the conversation is quite closed off actually surrounding student mental health and I think that that also needs to have an improvement because people need to be honest and open about their mental health issues otherwise we can't fix them collectively also.
1: Mm -hmm, mm So I think Perhaps we can sort of, maybe now is a good time to look back at the what we set off to do in the beginning of the project and the kind of questions we were um, hoping to address and um, consider the implications from the findings of your research, Anna, um, with regards to those questions. So, uh, I mean, I wonder if you have any kind of general thoughts around um, you know, we the we had these three broad explanations that Max outlined at the beginning of the, of the podcast um, around what are the causes of the anxiety epidemic, and so this just to summarize again, uh, there is the explanation that focuses on this question of the uh, that the Gen Z generation is um, cuddled, is very uh, spoiled, and and so there is too much complaining about the current problems for no good reason then there is the explanation that it's the it's an issue of technologies and how destructive and distracting they have been during that uh, crisis exacerbating those mental health issues and there's, there's the explanation around the medicalization and the 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 the, the, ext- the 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 treatment of the problem as a strictly clinical and drug related issue something that it, can be pharmaceutically addressed. So I'm wondering, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I have some, I think it's interesting in what you've been talking to us about that you've been telling us about the demands that students are making and the issues that they raise in their conversations. So, but I wonder if you had any thoughts around what the relevance of those um, findings is in relation to that, those explanatory frameworks that we, uh, that we sort of outlined in the beginning.
2: Yeah, I think what's interesting is that um, the research that I've done has clearly shown that those three explanations aren't really um, an explanation for what's happening throughout the universities in the UK. But I think what's specifically interesting about it is the way that the media is still framing the issue. I mean, up to date now, they're still framing it as those major like three explanations for the anxiety epidemic at the UK University and I think what's really interesting is that despite all of the student activism nothing gets reported in the media about it, hardly anything does. Um, So I think the way that student activism is framed within public discourse isn't an accurate representation And it's not being heard, also by like the public or by society, and I think that that's a massive issue, because the media still wants to frame the anxiety epidemic as uh, these three explanations. So I think that's quite an interesting um, Mm -hmm. topic or
1: explanation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you you were talking to us about you've been talking to us about some of the more Sort of angry responses and some of the uh, more collective kind of campaigns. So, the students at UCL um, uh, doing their um, sit ins and, and storming the office of the provost, or the students at Goldsmiths mm-hmm. doing all those uh, long campaigns on questions of racial uh, justice. So, these were very collective uh, acts and overtly political as well but then on the other hand we have those individual anonymous posts in the online forums and also very emotive and also expressing frustration and anger and despair as well as you were talking to us so i guess it makes me think about how the two are connected or how they can be connected in in, in other words you know, we on the one hand have a sense of community, of a political community at university, which looks into addressing and raising issues in a and campaigning about them in in a kind of more polemical fashion. And then we have those more anonymous individual um, spaces where, you know, there are political demands made there as well. But as you were saying, uh, it seems to be. Um, it seems to be also an expression of lack of other or uh, a feeling of lack of other spaces or um, ways to express uh, those, those feelings. So I'm just wondering how the two are connected and, and, and whether there is a sense of community perhaps in some of those online spaces, how this is, uh, how this translates into physical spaces as well. Are people talking about what's going on in the online forum. Um, yeah, so I wonder if you have any thoughts on this?
2: I think that's a really interesting point because I think although students can obviously be a really cohesive and supportive body um, for each other as like as a one, um, unfortunately mental health can also be quite an isolated issue and mm-hmm. people um, always feel alone when they're experiencing it so I think that in that sense uh, the issue can be quite isolated and the response to that within the student body isn't as collective as it should be. I think the people who are campaigning for um, difference in the mental health campaigns is unfortunately a minority because students don't feel comfortable enough expressing the ways that they feel. Um, I think that there's also a lot of pressure if you express a differing opinion or something controversial people will get comments online that aren't kind and that's also a big impact for mental health. So I think that, in a way, students are quite scared of um, not admitting that there's a problem, but suggesting that we need a change. Um, yeah, I think it can be quite an isolated issue suffering from a mental health um, problem, unfortunately. And that's why the online community, people who are posting, feel so alone. But then again, there's hundreds of comments on lots of the posts. And then that way, the online community is very supportive of each other but the people who are experiencing obviously feel alone for, for um, some reason and I think that's because a lot of students aren't willing to talk about their problems openly and honestly enough with each other.
0: When reading through your research I was thinking about a problem that sort of vexed us throughout this entire project which is that you know on the one hand coming from the perspective that Aris and I do we really want to identify the ways that the financialization of society and the broader sort of neoliberal trend towards individualism and competition and uh, kind of winner-takes-all capitalism. That somehow this is the kind of culprit behind the rise in the sort of um, the epidemic of mental health, as it's called. And I think we have some fairly elegant and convincing arguments for why that's the case. And, On the other hand, I think, um, I mean, sometimes I think your research indicates that students are making links between um, their experiences in the university and the policies and decisions of the university and these broader systems and structures, but often the they're, they're not necessarily making those explicitly. Uh, and maybe it's because ideologically, they have a different opinion about why the university is behaving the way it does or why young people seem to be so much more anxious and depressed than what we imagined was the case generations ago. Uh, but sometimes it's simply that people are sort of caught up in the, in the everyday grind of being at a university and, and their, their lived experience is that uh, they are not getting the help that they need and the institution of the force that is preventing them from getting the help they need is the university rather than, you know, some faceless system of ideological power out there in the universe that somehow sh- in a shadowy way associated with hedge funds and investment banks. Um, but it makes me think actually a little bit about um, someone who we haven't had a chance to talk about because this is the first episode we've recorded in a number of months uh, after the summer. Uh, but who just passed away. was the anthropologist from uh, London School of Economics, David Graeber, uh, who did a lot of research on social movements. And I've been thinking a lot about David Graeber since he passed away a little while ago, about a month ago, I suppose now. Um, And the one thing that always impressed me about him and his research on social movements, uh, which I think he took from being an anthropologist uh, more generally and having done a lot of field work in Madagascar when he was younger, and done field work on activist groups, is he would always, in a weird way, assume that even if uh, the subjects whom he was researching, which is, you know, in his case, activists, were not necessarily articulating something directly, they were articulating something in their actions. And so I remember him writing quite quite a bit on the Occupy movement, which he helped sort of kickstart in some ways in New York. Uh, and other movements of the last sort of 15 or 20 years, that have tended to move away from a kind of grand strategy of social transformation, and instead express themselves much more around people's lived needs. And what he would often point out is that when people mobilize to meet their needs otherwise through social movement activism, or when they mobilize together to make a demand on systems, even if they don't necessarily articulate all of the links to the broader systems of power that they're fighting against, there's still an element of what they're doing that does strike against those systems. And specifically, he would always point to, like, ask us to look at the the ways and the forms that people are organizing. And I think what I found really interesting about reading through the, um, the texts from the Facebook discussion groups is that to a certain extent, they're what we might imagine, which is that people are identifying the source of the problem and saying, we need to take action against this uh, university administrator or this policy. Um, But also there's a great deal of care that students are showing one another. I mean, sometimes it can be hostile and catty and, and unpleasant, but a lot of the time it feels like, especially relative to social movements in universities of previous generations, there is a politics of the doing that I noticed in the things that you you clipped for us and and identified for us, which is that students are developing an activism around providing care themselves for one another and you know telling each other you know if you're having suicidal ideation, call me any anytime, uh, commiserating with one another about uh, things that they 're suffering and and a, a certain sense of um, uh, mutual aid and peer support that I think is qualitatively new in the history of social movements. I mean, there's, there's been a movement towards it, I think, over the last 40 years, especially with the interventions of feminism, which is, you know, um, over the last 50 or 60 years really uh, highlighted that personal relationships are also political, uh, and other forms of activism and, and politics as well have contributed to this. But I feel, uh, just reading it over, and maybe I'm being overly romantic about this, but that there's a certain level that this generation of students who are coming out of the anxiety epidemic uh, are actually being able to practice certain kinds of political powers that maybe previous generations were not capable of. And, and this ties back, I think, to what Aris and I hoped to discover. And maybe I'm simply observing it because I hope to discover it. And, you know, this is just... Uh, bad social science research. But I feel in some sense that uh, one of the things that your research really affirms for me is that because students have had to survive uh, in this hostile financialized neoliberal climate, where they're not being provided with the tools they need in order to thrive, they are creating them themselves. And it's developing an analysis that is easy would be easy for some older-fashioned political scientists or political theorists to dismiss. But I think if we look at what students are actually doing and what they're doing for one another, we see something very, very different emerging at, at the, on the grassroots.
1: I also think that uh, what was um, especially interesting about Anna's findings was that I do think that, to some extent, they illuminate some of that space that we we're looking to explore that kind of political space uh, that is not, um, whose, whose form and shape and language is not necessarily what we expected and imagined it to be. And, you know, this is, although it does take the more traditional activist union type of uh, shape that, you know, was part of Anna's findings, I also think that the, uh, there is this other, sort of, more underground, or more um, uh, the, this more kind of clouded space of responding and discussing, and maybe more tentatively, more hesitantly, as Anna was saying, you know, people find it all obviously difficult to express their own suffering and, and to share it uh, in the community, yet somehow there are these registers where they do articulate that suffering and they don't, and I I think that ultimately those elements of uh, skepticism and some of that cynical uh, type of responses and the awareness, there is, you know, above all that awareness that this is a financialized neoliberal university, it's, there are issues of funding, but then there are also issues of, Um, almost an ideology and a propaganda and a kind of patronizing attitude that is trying to tell us something that is not really the case. I think, you know, combined together, those elements do map out, I think, an interesting, potentially political territory at universities. And I I think, you know, I would be, and of course this is, uh, Max and I are hoping to continue investigate this this space and and, you know there are so many fascinating lines of further research that we can move on to from from where we are now. I mean for example I think that you know some of those questions I think it it does that issue around how we bridge that anonymous individual space with a more collective community type of uh, space uh, where students come together to to act on on those and share experiences. I mean, it's it's a, it's a fascinating one, and I'm wondering whether there are more spaces that we are simply not aware of. And uh, you know, also I'm I'm wondering personally. I mean, I'm I'm very interested in how uh, students use everyday technologies not as a means to distract them from their problems, but also as a as a means to cope with problems. So you know, Facebook and forums like the ones that Anna studied certainly fulfill. Like a, a, an important role here. But I'm wondering also about uh, chat groups in other apps. I'm wondering about the use of spaces where memes and, and images are shared, you know, Instagram stories and TikTok and, and those kind of uh, digital spaces that are not themselves political. But, I'm, I, but I think uh, uh, to some extent, they offer that ground for ex- expressing uh, some of those concerns. So for me, I would be interested. And, and I wonder, Anna, if you have any thoughts actually on that, um, on that sort of issue of um, the broader question of technologies and and the kind of spaces of everyday use of di- digital apps. That um, uh, how how those might be an interesting space around expressing, sharing, and yeah. possibly politicizing as well, the problem.
2: I think what's a really interesting point is the fact that the media framed social media as one of the causes for this Mm. social anxiety epidemic in UK Mm. universities, but actually, social media is a way of students joining together and has formed this online community that we've spoken about. Mm. Um, And the way that it's being discussed, well, the way that social media runs has allowed us to delve into these online forums where these issues are being discussed and without it, students wouldn't have a space to talk about what's happening within the university and also within society regarding mental health issues. Um, I know that there are many online forums that people talk about mental health on. And I think that Facebook is, the ones that I've found are definitely very thorough and there's hundreds of posts on them. But I think that also, yeah, in future, a good place to go would to be look on these other online forums because there's huge discussion going on everywhere because social media is essentially what young people use now to communicate. So, yeah.
0: Fabulous. Well, uh, this has been uh, another episode of the order of unmanageable risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. Uh, this, uh, podcast is produced by, uh, the common anxieties research project with assistance from the Reimagining Value Action Lab and UCL's Institute for Advanced Studies. And you can always find out more and listen to past episodes at anxious.community. We look forward to seeing you next time.
1: Goodbye.